As you know, we are in the book of Jonah. We're wrapping it up this week. If you have your Bible, you could turn to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to go through uh, Jonah chapter 3 and 4 today. And um, as you know, I threw out some ideas last week about Jonah and the way that we understand it. Um, I think for a long time we've lived with a pretty domesticated view of the book of Jonah. We've tamed it quite a bit. Right? We want Jonah to end at the conclusion of chapter 3. We want like the whole story to be this like good, great, awesome ending. Uh, the, all of Nineveh repents. Everyone's super excited about it. The whole book and everybody that reads it claps and we go, great. Uh, but today we're also going to be reading chapter 4. And uh, I'm glad we're reading it. Because uh, chapter 4 forces us to understand that the Bible is real. It's raw. It's not always uh, simple to read. It's not always uh, comfortable to read the way that it reads. Uh, It's full of complexities. It's full of messiness. And uh, we get to dig into a little bit of that this morning. In fact, in Jonah 4, I think what you see is this God that pursues a God that is about grace, and he's extending great grace. And it's also a picture of a God that I think doesn't necessarily fit into our boxes really simply and easily. I started thinking about it this week, and if I was to have written the book of Jonah, it would have, my version would have gone something like this. Jonah received the command. Jonah ran away. Jonah got on a boat. Jonah threw himself overboard. Jonah died, God got a new prophet, story goes on, right? That's how I would have done it, be like, I'm done with you, right? It's like, it's over, you, you want to go that way, then fine, that's fine. Uh, but instead we see this picture of a God of grace that pursues a self-righteous, narrow-minded, judgmental, angry prophet, that he keeps pursuing him with love and with grace. I uh, want to warn you this morning um, that in preparation for this message, I have been uh, preaching or teaching for over 20 years, and I will say the theme of the talk this morning is the one in which most people uh, respond with great divided opinion on, okay? And the reason I say this is because uh, every time I give this talk, every time I talk about this subject, about one-third of everybody in the audience goes, Man, that was so amazing. I'm so grateful to hear that. That, that just like brings such joy to my life. Maybe half of the people feel that way. It varies depending on the, audi- the audience. And then the other two-thirds or so hate it. They're just like, so I get these like, Oh, it's the greatest emails and... You're the worst emails, right? All at the same time. And uh, the humble love it. Those who have received great grace and have been forgiven much love it. The prodigal sons and daughters love it. The older brothers, as was read a little bit earlier, hate it. The much debated topic for this morning is grace. The thing that we love and hate all at the same time. And so, we will look at Jonah 3. If you have your Bible, uh, hopefully you're already there. We're just going to go straight through the text and look at chapter 3 
in chapter 4 and see what it might teach us this morning. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So Jonah enters, and there's this amazing like proclamation that happens. <clears throat> it's pretty unbelievable, really, what takes place. I mean, just imagine for a moment, Jonah enters into the city. He's reluctantly gone. He has this hypocritical prayer in chapter 2. He has no desire to go, but does anyway because he realizes he has no option. He goes to the center of the city, and you can imagine the expression on his face as with great energy he proclaims, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Right? And, like, everything changes. In that very moment, he gets amazing results. I mean, the whole city repents. I mean, just just picture for a moment that happening today. A guy named Jonah is a part of our community. He walks into the center of Spokane, into the middle, near the, the, the park, and he just goes, hey, in 40 days, the whole city will be destroyed. And then the whole city repents. I'm telling you, if that happened... Not only would the whole city change, but Jonah would be the man. He would be on like a Christian concert tour preaching. He'd he'd be like going to conferences. He'd be signing book deals. He'd be giving seminars how to say five Hebrew words and have the whole city repent. I mean, he'd be doing podcasts. He'd have the world's largest church. It would be... Amazing. Jonah would be the man. The passage goes on to say this, though. That the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You have Nineveh's reaction. Nineveh, all of Nineveh repents. They're broken. They're weeping. They're saying, man, if we turn from our wicked ways, maybe God will spare us. I mean, think about the last time you had the most significant moment of repentance you ever had. Where you broke down before God, you got on your knees, and you said, God, please help me. I'm going to guess that when you did that, it didn't include your cat or your dog. Right? But what, they, what they're doing here is saying not just all of us, but all of everything in our city will repent. 
Another way to think of it is their animals were their economics. It was their lifestyle. It was their living. They're basically saying, we're going to shut down the whole city. There will be no more commerce going on, no more business, no more any. The number one priority in the whole city is repentance, brokenness, to fall on our face before God, to respond to the message. And then the text says this, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster, and then He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. So their reaction is humbleness. Their reaction is repentance. And His reaction, or His response, is grace. It's mercy. It's forgiveness. It's love. It's Him changing His mind. It's him going back on what he had planned on doing and doing something completely different. And usually this is where we end the story. This is usually at least where the children's Bible's in the story and video curriculum ends the story is right here at this moment. But we'll press on. We'll move into chapter 4. Because I think there's a lot in chapter 4 for us. It says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well? To be angry. Now we've got a lot going on in this particular section. This revival has brought repentance. And something amazing is happening in Nineveh. All of the people are on their knees. The king, the nobles, the commoners, even the livestock join in. Everybody is weeping. Everybody is repentant. And then we have Jonah. The last we hear of Jonah in chapter 3 is him giving a five-word sermon. And then the next thing we hear from him is Jonah seething in anger. The way the Hebrew reads in this particular section is this. It was evil to Jonah a great evil. So in the Hebrew, what you have is Jonah bracketed by the words evil. So Jonah, in this very moment, thinks that what God is doing is evil, and the Hebrew Scriptures are pointing to the idea that you yourself and all of your heart is wrapped in evil. That it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. And Jonah basically in this text is saying, I knew it. God, I knew you were going to do it. I, knew, I saw it coming. That's why I'm so frustrated, because I knew it was happening. I was nervous. I didn't want to do it. It's why I ran. It's why I said I wasn't going to do it. You made me do this, and I'm not really cool with it, because what Jonah was doing in that moment is struggling with God's grace. He was struggling with the goodness toward the other. 
And what he does is the next thing that comes out of his mouth after this idea that he was angry, hot with anger, that he, he believed what God did was evil, he then quotes from Exodus 34. To give you a little context on Exodus 34, those of you not familiar with it, this is the section where God had just saved Israel from disaster. He just brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He just helped them cross the Red Sea. He just had Pharaoh and all the armies die. He had just done the plagues. He brought them. He had saved them, rescued them. And he gets them to this moment and he says, okay, great, you guys rest here. And at that moment, what they do is they gather all of their gold, they melt it all down, and their first act is to create a golden calf and begin to worship it. God had sent Moses up on the mountain. Moses comes down. God and Moses see what happens. Moses smashes the tablets. And God basically says, I'm going to destroy him right now. That's what I want to do. And Moses is like, well, time out, stop. And God says, you tell them this, that the only reason they still exist is because I'm a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's a quote God says, and Jonah is quoting it, right? God is gracious, meaning he longs for and favors others. He's merciful, meaning tender in affection. He's slow to anger, and the text says that he's abounding in hesed, which is loyal, steadfast, covenantal love. That's the way he describes himself in this moment. What, G- what Jonah is doing is quoting a time where Israel is spared. They're shown great mercy. They're shown great grace. And he says, in that moment... We were spared. He quotes, and that at the same time, apparently to Jonah in this moment, God's grace and mercy have limits. It's only for some. That he is not okay with a God who throws around grace haphazardly. He's not okay or can't accept a God who's lavish with his love and extravagant with it. I would say Jonah likes Goldilocks grace. Grace that's not too much, not too little, but just the right amount, right? Just the right amount, just for the right people. But what we know is that God's grace is scandalous. And at this very moment, Jonah feels justified in his anger. He feels so right about it. He's, he basically is a God, I was right about you. I knew you would do this. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew that you were going to show grace. I, I, I knew it. And, and almost in some ways he's saying, if I had to do it all over again, I would have run again. And probably gone faster or further or have gotten it better this time. But there's no way I'd be here in this moment. And God asks him a question. He says, are you right to be angry? Another way of maybe reading that is, are you sure you've gauged the situation correctly? You sure you got this one figured out, Jonah? And here's where I think the real learning comes for us. We have to ask the question, what keeps us from extending grace to others? The grace that we've received, Jonah received that grace. What keeps us from extending that same grace to other people? 
And what I want to do is suggest three barriers that keep us from extending grace that are found in the rest of the text. Three barriers that keep us from extending grace. In order to do that, look at this next section. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Barrier number one. I think a lot of times we choose justice over love. We choose justice over love. Or another way of saying it, maybe we choose what's supposed to be in our minds over what could be. What's supposed to be over what could be. So here's where the whole situation goes from bad to even worse. Okay? Jonah, the text at least indicates, doesn't even answer the question. Do you do well to be angry? No response. Doesn't even answer it. Instead, the text says that Jonah starts to build a shelter outside of Nineveh, waiting for God to destroy it. Waiting to see what's going to happen to the city. And so you have this crazy contrast. Inside of the city gates, inside of the walls, you have a whole city on their knees, repenting, sackcloth and ashes, weeping, mourning, repenting to God. And on the outside of the city walls, you have a silent prophet waiting for destruction. Hopeful. Jonah wants justice. He wants things the way they should be. The way he thought it should go. He wants what's fair. And he's incredibly self-focused. Right? He's self-absorbed. He's self-deceived in the moment. In fact, in the Hebrew, the, the words I or my, my occur nine times in the text. So again, he's like, me, 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 mine, 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 I, I, I. It's all about Jonah still. It's all about what he wants, even in many ways at great cost to him. There's a point where he's in great pain because the sun is beating down. Some speculate as to why that's the case. Uh, I've always wondered, and one of the theories that has been out there for a long time is uh, that Jonah, having spent three days in the belly of a whale did not sit in that whale like Pinocchio did, three days in the belly of this fish. He was instead, if you think about it, was in a fish and in its stomach and was just constantly moving around as the stomach's trying to digest him. There's all kinds of juices and fluids and it smelled and it was probably rotting 
And then he gets spewed out on land. And some wonder if part of the reason why Nineveh repented so quickly is because when he walked into the center of the city, he would have had no hair on his body. It would have been eaten off. He would have been completely white like a ghost. Like his skin had, would have no pigmentation from three days of being an acid. And he walks in just looking horrible and walks up and says, repent, and they're, they're shocked at who it is. Think about it. And so Jonah's sitting on a hill in the desert with temperatures over 100 degrees with no pigmentation in his skin, with no hair on his head, I can relate, with, with, with no, no covering, no shade, and the sun is beating down, he's probably starting to get boils and, and peeling and burning, and it's the worst discomfort, worst pain, but he decides to sit there anyway and wait for justice. Think about that. That's crazy. He was such a man of deep conviction and yet was so misunderstood in this situation. He got it all wrong. He was with great conviction and without grace all at the same time. He thought, this is the way it's supposed to be. I want justice. And he had no love. He had no mercy. And so what does God do in that moment? God acts in grace. He brings a plant. Here's point number two, barrier number two. We are blind to acts of grace in our own life. Since Jonah's missing the point, God decides to give him an object lesson. It's like, I'll do creative teaching 101. Instead of just talking to you, you're not getting it. I'm going to set up an illustration that will help you figure this out. And so you notice right away, God has a plant come and it provides shade. And the text says that Jonah was exceedingly glad. But you also notice that he gives no credit to God for the plant. He just is exceedingly glad about the plant. Moments earlier, he was exceedingly angry. And now he's exceedingly glad. Jonah loves when there's provision made for him. But hates when God wants to graciously provide for the Ninevites. You've ever been there? And I love that you poured out that blessing on me. I'm not so sure about the way you handled that. I don't know if you've been there. I've been there, right? And so Jonah is blind to how good God has been. He's blind to the fact that when he ran away, God spared him. He's blind to the fact that when he went into the ocean, God provided a fish. He's blind to the fact that God gave him another chance as a prophet to go do what he was supposed to do. He's blind to the fact that now God has provided shade for him, that God is so good and that God is so gracious to him, and he misses all of it. And here's the crazy irony of the story. I don't know if you've ever read... Jonah, and then flipped back to 2 Kings. In 2 Kings, there's this real crucial idea that's important to the story of Jonah. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 22, or 23 to 25, it'll be on the screen. It says this, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, And he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He's leading all of Israel astray. He's doing what is evil 
And the text in verse 35 says this, He restored the border of Israel, so good things are happening to Israel in the midst of their wickedness. And it says this, that all of that was brought according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah the prophet. Don't miss it. Here's what happened. God extended mercy to Israel when they were rebellious. And he gave the message to say, you're having mercy to who? Jonah. He gave it to Jonah. So Jonah's last like prophetic utterance to the people was, you're being spared, Israel. God is showing mercy for your wickedness. His next assignment essentially, is this one. Jonah is like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He loves grace for himself, but is unable to show grace to others. He wants to receive mercy, but unwilling to extend mercy to someone else. Here's the crazy thing about the older son crazy thing perhaps about Jonah they, with the older son when the younger son he's fine with him being estranged from the father does nothing about it realizes his brother basically slaps his dad in the face and goes yeah I don't care right he's fine with him being distant he's fine with him living wildly and ungodly he's fine with him starving and maybe even being murdered. He's fine with the company he's keeping, but God forbid that his brother come to his senses, come back home and repent. God forbid that his brother get grace. God forbid that he get mercy and compassion. So we have this weird thing, I think, in religion where we love judgment and hate mercy. We have this weird thing in the church where we have a kind of self-righteousness that says that we are okay with us receiving mercy as long as we don't extend it to someone else or as long as it's not too much mercy, right? Jonah here forgets that he's even received mercy. He lost sight of it. The Pharisees in the New Testament don't even think they need mercy. The story of the tax collector who's looking over the sinner praying to God and saying, I'm glad that I don't need the same kind of mercy that this wicked man praying needs, right? That's the older brother. We think mercy is a beautiful thing, and it is, but here's the truth. Most of the time, the only people that think it's beautiful are those that realize they need it. The ones who feel like they've got their act together actually find mercy to be undesirable. See, what Jonah didn't realize and what we sometimes don't realize is that we're the ones that need mercy. Once we realize how badly we need mercy is when we realize how beautiful mercy is. Until then, it's like offensive. Till then, grace is kind of like scandalous. Until we realize our own needs. See, the answer to Jonah was not for him to see Nineveh as worthy of grace. That's not the answer, because they weren't. They weren't worthy of grace. I think the answer that Jonah needed to understand was that he was as equally in need of mercy as them. 
That's where we miss it. That's where we miss it. Is we think, yes, yeah, certainly they need it. But the truth is we need it just as much. Which brings us to barrier number three. And that's misplaced love. Misplaced love. What Jonah has is a love that's misplaced. One of the ways that I think our love is different than the love that God shows is that God always values people the most. There's this old saying that I heard, says this, In God's city, the inhabitants love people and walk on gold, while in man's city, the inhabitants love gold and walk on people. God always values people the most. And you have this interesting thing going on in the text. There are about three times in which there's these parallel statements where it says that God appointed something. You probably, as you were reading it, you kept hearing it. God appointed. He appointed a plant. He appointed a worm. He appointed wind and the sun. And each appointment in the text has a response to it. So God appointed one thing, Jonah responds. God appoints a second thing. So for example, God appoints a plant, and Jonah is exceedingly what? Happy, glad, excited. God appoints the wind and the hot sun, and Jonah is angry. But there's no mention of how Jonah responded to the plant, at least from Jonah. It doesn't say there was a plant that died and Jonah felt this way. The only way we know how he felt is because Yahweh speaks again in verse 10. And he says this, you pity the plant. This is the first time in the whole book that you see Jonah having compassion. Pity, the definition of this in this context, literally means to have tears in one's eyes. So God says, okay, this whole time nothing, and you get to this point, and you weep over a plant. Are you kidding me? You're, you're at tears, you're pitying a plant. Something for which you had no personal involvement. Something that you didn't tend. It's not like you planted something and nurtured it and watered it, waited for it. You did nothing for the plant. You didn't care for the plant. The plant is here, not because of you at all. It's because I appointed it. You have compassion for something that's here one moment and is gone the next. And what God is doing is putting a spotlight on Jonah's heart and on his heart in this last section. Jonah, you felt compassion for what on the scale of all things in this story is probably really low, the plant life. And should I not care about the 120,000 people who are ignorant of me? You cared for something that cost you nothing, and yet you're frustrated that I care for humanity that I created and love with all of my heart. And so you have this weird, abrupt ending to the book of Jonah. 
And God ends it with a question. It's a question that Jonah never even answers. It's a question that you, you have no understanding of how the story ends. And he's left with this question, and should I not pity Nineveh? And so it's the same question for us. Should we not pity Nineveh? Should we not care? Should we not care for this city? Should we not care for the people who call it home? Should we not care for any and everyone that comes into our community? So I think the church should be a place where grace flourishes. I think the church should be a place where inclusion and forgiveness and compassion reign. I think the church should be a place of vulnerability and welcome and forgiveness. And so it's an open question that leaves us to write our ending. What does it look like for us? I want to leave you with this quote. I read it a few years ago, um, and it continues to just cause me to wrestle with this idea of grace. It's Mike Iaconelli, and he says this, I have this sneaking suspicion that God does not really care about a lot of our rules. We see this in the life of Jesus, Jesus who's always doing what he shouldn't. Jesus who talked with women even though it wasn't socially proper and with Samaritans even though they didn't believe as he did. Jesus who touched lepers and dead people even though it made him ritually unclean. Jesus who healed on the Sabbath even though no work was supposed to be done. Jesus' actions said over and over again, I am about grace. Christianity's most shocking belief is not hell or judgment. It's our steadfast declaration that adoption into God's family is free to anyone who wants it. This is scandalous. The grace of God is dangerous. It's lavish, excessive, outrageous, and scandalous. God's grace is ridiculously inclusive. Apparently, God doesn't care who he loves. He's not very careful about the people he calls his friends or the people he calls his church. And he's included us.